0: Yesterday, I had occasion to visit a friend in Hornchurch. The man is 89 years old, closer actually to 90. He is in a care home where he will see out the rest of his life. I met him some years ago whilst living just a few doors down from him. I live in a flat above the church in Woodgreen. He lives four or five doors up the street. His house is remarkable. Very little of it has been changed since the mid-20th century. He has lived in that house since 1936, until his move Good Friday of this year, after an extended time in hospital. Six, or perhaps it was now seven years ago, I began to time my trips to Sainsbury's to coincide with his, after the very stubborn man would resist offers for help. But nonetheless, as a man of routine, would always go to the shops at the same time on the same day. And so if I ran into him struggling with his bags, I had an opportunity to help him home. By that time, he was walking with his head level almost to his hip, stooped over to the side, shuffling at a snail's pace. It was a very... Pathetic and heartrending sight, but he would not ask anyone for help. If help was offered, he would take it, but only to the doorstep. Living such an isolated life with no family close to him and no friends of which to speak was a choice characteristic of someone who nonetheless had given most of his life to caring for, on the one hand, his wife, who was sick before they were married, and his mom, who lived into a great old age. He never asked anyone for anything, never sought their help, and he certainly didn't ask God for anything. You see, this man is an unbeliever. Nonetheless, seven years ago, when he stopped answering the door uh, for some welfare checks that I had arranged while out of the country, I uh, I arrived back home, and someone's knocking on my door very loudly, saying he's not coming to the door. And so I find a way to break into his house, and uh, I find this elderly man laying uh, on the floor of his upstairs home, Um, uh, collapsed, likely having been there for 24 hours without food, without drink, um, having soiled himself and torn the whole house apart, trying to reach for something to grab hold of. Even there, laying on the ground, he was apologetic and seemed embarrassed that there was someone there to help him. Uh, I made sure that he made it to the hospital, and he was in hospital for a prolonged period of time and then was in a care home for a while, and as his mental health deteriorated significantly in that care home, we believed it would be best for him to return to his lodgings with the understanding that I would be providing care for him on a uh, regular basis. At one point while he was in the hospital, a woman came around with a form and said there were uh, some, some massive gaps that had not been answered. One of which was faith. And of course, as a pastor, I was very keen to know what this, my extremely isolated and reserved neighbor, believed. The person left it with us and uh, she would come back. So I begin to ask him questions about faith and he tells me that he does not believe in God. That until the age of six years old, he attended the Sunday school in the hall of the church church building where I am now pastor. But at the age of six, after some playground teasing, uh, he decided he no longer believed in God and he did not wish to attend the Sunday school and he has never substantially darkened the door of a gospel preaching church since, at least for the purposes of Christian worship. Over the years that have followed, despite my efforts at ministering to him and caring for him and Um, yes, seeking to share the gospel with him, I was most disheartened yesterday afternoon to ask him some probing questions about life after death, hope, and yes, faith in God. And he told me he didn't believe that it was all to him a bit far-fetched. Which I found very sad because I find No belief, more far-fetched. The idea that this world is an accident and that all of this is meaningless, the logical implications of atheism, I find that far more far-fetched than the belief in God. What was interesting, though, never having darkened the door of a church for teaching or worship since the age of six, what he remembered were the Bible stories. He certainly could not give a systematic theology. He could not comment on the grand meta narrative of Scripture. He could not delineate the extent of the, t- the atonement, but he remembered Bible stories. And so I want to tell you a Bible story this morning. And I want, as I tell you, a Bible story from the passage which we just read. I hope that you come to a different conclusion than my friend. The story is fundamentally about God, not about any of the other characters that appear in it. It is chiefly about the God who sees. The God who sees A woman in the wilderness, the God who sees you, and the God who sees me this morning. Whatever griefs you are carrying, whatever burdens you bear, whatever concerns you have brought with you into this room, however nice it might seem conceptually to check your baggage at the door, you haven't been able to, and so you find yourself gathered, perhaps distracted, perhaps hoping for a moment to escape but knowing when you walk out and face the realities of your life you may once again find yourself looking into the chasm of personal despair perhaps it is not as dark as that but you find yourself substantially distracted by need or the prospect of need you might not be feeling it now or yet but the cost of living as it goes up or the, um, uh, the various workplace fiascos that are ongoing in your life or perhaps uh, educational challenges or might I say more personal things close to home that either are ongoing or loom upon the horizon and you wonder how you're going to make it, you wonder how you're going to deal with it how you're going to face it. This morning's message, this morning's story, communicates to each of you wherever you are. Perhaps you're in a blessed place. Perhaps you're you're not in the wilderness. Perhaps you're in a garden. But wherever you are, there is a God who sees. He sees you. He hears you. He knows you. And He calls you by name. So we must call him by name. The story before us begins with bad news. Bad news. An exploited woman. You see, it tells us of this couple, Abram and Sarai. They were a wealthy Couple, an extraordinarily wealthy couple from one of the wealthiest cities of the ancient Near East, the city of Ur. If you go to the, the um, British Museum, you can see artifacts from Ur and you can learn about its history. And you can see the, uh, just even in the things that they have, the ornate furniture pieces that have survived millennia that testify to the extravagant and opulent wealth of Of the people of Ur. But Abram and Sarai have been called by God, a God that they did not know or worship, but God called them away from their idols, away from the opulent comforts of their city, to a place that they were totally unfamiliar with, a land of promise that God chose them to give. To them, they've obeyed. And while we can say that's fantastic, they believed God and they have gone out to seek this promise that God has made to them, they are far from holy in their behavior, their attitude, and their actions. They are very much people with whom God is still dealing. At this time in their life, they have not even received new covenantal names of Abraham and Sarah, which we would perhaps primarily remember them by. They are both in old age, and Sarai has not borne Abram children. However, she has an Egyptian servant named Hagar. They had sojourned for a while in Egypt and it seems had picked up Hagar along the way and she was uh, a servant, indeed a slave serving them. Sarah, Sarai at this time goes to Abram and says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. This was a problem because the Lord had promised to Abram that he would be the father of many nations. The Lord had promised him that that his descendants would be as many as the stars of the heaven and the sands of the seashore. How can you have that when you don't have a single child? Your wife has proven it would seem incapable of giving birth. So Sarai decides she's going to make the Lord's promise happen, And she is going to creatively do God's work for him. She says to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, but I have a servant here and um, uh, maybe I'll obtain children by her. Of course, you understand that that is a biological impossibility. The children born by Hagar, fathered by Abram, are not in any meaningful terms Sarai's children, are they? She's proposing something that seems like surrogacy, but really it's adultery, polygamy at best. There, there, there is no uh, 21st century science by, by which Uh, Two parents can um, uh, have a child that uh, is uh, developed within someone else's womb. That's not what's going on here. Sarai is saying, here is my servant. Here is my slave. Go to her. And I will obtain children by her. Abram, listened to the voice of Sarai. Abram's lived ten years in the land of Canaan, this land that God had brought them to. And Sarai, Abram's wife, takes Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gives her to Abram as a wife. But as we read the passage, you will note that she does not have wifely status. She has no wifely provisions or protections. There is nothing legitimate about this relationship that establishes her in any meaningful terms as Abram's wife. She simply fulfills one, let's say, two functions. Abram can have sexual relations with this woman. And this woman can bear a child for Abram. That's it. That doesn't sound like a wife, does it? And if you just take the first one, you might say that that is at best a prostitute, but she's not being paid. So it's just an exploited woman, a sexually exploited and abused woman. At no point is she involved in this conversation. It is Abram and Sarai who are talking about how they are going to use Hagar, the Egyptian slave. But she's going to bear a child. Theoretically, how are they to know that Hagar cannot bear children? Uh, Whatever she would have gone through that ended up with her being in slavery to begin with, never mind her experience as a slave, one could hypothesize that Hagar might very well be unable to bear children, but they, they don't know this, and... They're just talking about how they will use this woman for sexual and reproductive purposes. Do we see the problem with this? An exploited woman, already exploited by virtue of status in all probability, but now this sexual component and this reproductive component are added upon her. Abram listens to Sarai and he goes to Hagar and she conceives. And when she saw that she had conceived, she, the text says, effectively looked with contempt on her mistress. There are some versions of this story where people make out that Sarai was the victim of uh, just bad behavior on her servant's part. I, I hope that already we've established that Abram and Sarai are not the good guys in this story. Is God working in them? Yes. Has God called them to himself? Absolutely. Has God given them promises? And is he in the process of making covenant with them? Absolutely. But they are, in this story, walking in sin. And for a moment, think about if you are Hagar. No say. No consent. No consultation. But a man and a woman with status above you in the class structure of your society are planning how to use you for their own purposes to obtain a promise that you will not be able to enjoy. I think I can say for myself, I would look with contempt upon whoever put me in that situation. Hagar's carrying a child, but it's a child that will not be named by her. It is a child that will, will not be hers, but Abram and Sarai have constructed this pseudo scientific method whereby this child is somehow Sarai's and Abram's and not Hagar's. Sexually used and reproductively exploited, she carries a child that she will not be able to call her own. And so she looks with contempt on her mistress. Is she to be used? Is she to be an object for this man's sexual activity and for the reproductive purposes of this family? She's a human being but I doubt she felt like it in that moment. Exploited, but it gets possible worse. She looks with contempt upon her mistress. Sarai notices that the attitude has changed. She catches Hagar looking at her a certain kind of way. And again, some people have interpreted this and I believe they're projecting all kinds of nonsense that often reveal their own lack of experience of suffering and um, exploitation. Uh, That that Hagar was pregnant and she was happy that she was pregnant and look at Sarai. She couldn't get pregnant and I'm pregnant and, and I'm better than her. I don't believe that the text gives us any indication of that. There are stories in scripture that, that tell us that, but that's not, I believe, what is happening here. Out of the pit of exploitation, Hagar looks with whether it was righteously exercised or not, it does not say, but just content upon a woman who has concocted a very evil plan. And Sarai says to Abram, as though she is the victim of the scenario, may the wrong done to me be on you. Poor guys can't get a break. You know, he he has received the promise from God, but his wife's not been able to to carry a, a child. And you can imagine that this is weighing upon him a bit. But then his wife brought this as a possible solution. And, and, and she was acting anxious about the promise of God. She brings Abram a plan, and he, he, he's like, oh, are you sure that's, that's okay? Is that what you, do you, you really, are you cool with that? Do you think that's a good solution? And you can imagine the sort of conversations, and Sarah is like, absolutely, yes, absolutely fine. It's my idea, isn't it? And now that they're experiencing the fruit of their idea, Sarai says, look what you've done to me. It's your fault. May the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. It's quite, um, uh, you, you know, oddly amusing. It's a horrible situation that she frames the relationship in affectionate terms. I gave my servant to your embrace as though it was a relationship of love and affection and warmth, safety, care, all of that good stuff. It wasn't, it's was purely utilitarian. It was all about using this woman. Sarai says, May the Lord judge between you and me. So Hagar has become a point of division. Abram says to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. One can say Abram was just weary of it all. He's getting a bit tired. He is an old man. And on the one hand, there's the pressure of having a child, and not just a child, the pressure of having a son. Um, uh, uh, to, to really uh, propagate your people fulfilling the promise of God. You know, God said, I'll give you a son. And he's not had a son. He's not had any child. Then his wife was unhappy. And then she said, this servant, it, you know, use her for these purposes. And now she's upset that he used her for these purposes. And just, he probably is done with it. Just, just, You make the decision, do with her as you want. And we're told that Sarai dealt hardly with her. Harshly. The, the, The word is not simply she began to speak aggressively toward her. It is a word that That describes physical violence. She began to assault her servant. She began to physically abuse this pregnant woman that is pregnant because of the situation that Sarai had put her in. Hagar exploited. Hagar assaulted leads to Hagar exhausted. She, she's used and she's abused and she's done with it. She's tired of it. She's sick of it. And she runs. She flees from Sarai. And, and, and when uh, she is treated so, so hardly, she, she fulfills actually the meaning of her name. Hagar means, one of its meanings at least, is flight. She runs. Because she, She can't take it anymore. She would sooner run into the wilderness away from the safety and comfort of her servile arrangement and face death potentially as a pregnant woman in the wilderness than life a slave in Abram and Sarai's tents. That's how serious this situation is. That's bad news. I, I don't know your personal histories. I don't know your personal experiences, what you've been through, what you've dealt with, even this past week, what you've brought into the room today. But there's something true of the human experience that makes all of us in this sinful world familiar at some level with exploitation with assault, with exhaustion. Perhaps we are on the receiving end of it. Perhaps you are on the giving end of it. And often as is the case in a complicated and sinful world, more often than not all of us are innocent of some things and guilty of other things. You can be a victim and a victimizer. You can be simultaneously a person who is oppressed in one area of your life and oppressive in another area. That's sin. Bad news. But friends, there is good news in this story oftentimes we don't appreciate the good news except with reference to the bad news. I think that if all we had was good news, then all would be good and we wouldn't actually understand good. And we wouldn't be refreshed by it because we wouldn't have anything to be refreshed from. And we wouldn't be saved by it because we wouldn't have anything to be saved from. The realities of are that we have bad and good. And the bad is what really defines the good in many ways. It is against the bleak, indeed dark backdrop of bad news that the glorious light of good news shines. God finds the fleeing. Hagar has run out into the wilderness, and we're told that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And the angel of the Lord spoke to her and said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And Sarai said, I'm fleeing from my mistress. Who is this, the angel of the Lord? The exact phrase that is used in this passage and is used in other places in the Old Testament is Malach Yahweh, Malach Yahweh. It literally means messenger of Yahweh. It is the only angel mentioned in Scripture who bears the personal covenantal name of God, Yahweh. The only angel that has that appended to to the the name. Um, uh, It is the first time, actually, that we see the messenger of Yahweh, the Malach Yahweh, in all of Scripture, in this passage. Indeed, some have pointed out as they study this particular character throughout the Old Testament that it seems that this is not just an angel. It is not just any angel. It is not just even a divine created being. But there are some who believe, and I would be in their number, that this may very well be a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord himself the Malach Yahweh, the messenger of Yahweh, the word, if you will, of God in flesh. If so, then here we have God appearing in angelic form, a messenger of God who speaks from God, for God, as God, and is, later in the passage, called by Hagar, God which is why I speak with great confidence that this is the Lord himself appearing before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Hagar calls this, this being God, and yet there are ways in which um, uh, this um, uh, this. Appearance seems distinct in some way from God, but nonetheless, it is God expressed visibly, revealed physically, and in some way embodied. We cannot grasp it. We cannot comprehend it. We don't fully understand what is going on, but Hagar knew. She called, verse 13 says, the name of the Lord that spake unto her. But it said the angel of the Lord was the one who spoke unto her. Again, it is the Malach Yahweh. It is the messenger of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, speaking to her in the wilderness. God finds the fleeing. So whatever you are running from today, whatever you are hiding from, what. Whatever it is that you are seeking refuge from, and perhaps you are seeking refuge in more dangerous places even than the ones from which you are fleeing, God finds the fleeing. It is often in the wilderness when we encounter God. This is the first time that God reveals himself in this particular way in all of Scripture. And throughout Scripture, it is often in the wilderness that people encounter God and experience God in fresh ways. That is not to say new ways, because God is above time and space and is neither new nor old. He is the ancient of days. He is eternal. Nothing is new or changing with Him, but as far as we experience God. And interact with God ourselves. If you find yourself in a dry and desolate place in your life. If you find yourself as some have in a place without springs. Or as Hagar was fortunate on this occasion. With a spring. You may encounter God there. Don't give up hope. Don't walk away. Don't throw everything away and all all faith and all hope and all love to the winds of the desert and pursue life according to your own rules, but seek the Lord in His face. Call upon Him in that wilderness place. He's still the God who finds the fleeing. Maybe you think you're running from God, but it's not God you're running from. It's something else entirely. Oftentimes, I I hear people say they are running from God or something along those lines. And I inquire further, and it seems that they're not running from God. They're running from the very opposite. They're running from godlessness. And my counsel to you, if that is you today, if you're disoriented or disillusioned by something someone has said or done who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ, who professes to believe in God. Remember that Abram and Sarai professed to believe in God, and indeed, we read in Scripture, and it's painful to square this with some of their behavior, that they believed God, and it was counted to them as righteousness. But God does not approve of injustice, or immorality, or idolatry. All of which may persist. And I urge you, you do not respond to people who are rejecting godliness by rejecting God. You join their team when you do that. Am I making sense? You're joining the side of the people you're running from, because their bad behaviors are themselves a rejection of God and His truth. And so you're going to reject God and His truth because of them and what they've said and what they've done. No, we we, we must we must see God, and we must see. His love for us and His care for us and we must endure not because our faith is in His people but because our faith is in Him. He is faithful when we are faithless. And just bear in mind that there's always someone else looking at us, looking at you and may use you as their excuse to turn away. All have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. And we all run at some point in our life. But God finds the fleeing. Not only does God find the fleeing. God helps the hopeless. Hagar has unburdened about the situation. And Very brief terms, I'm running from Sarai, my mistress. Perhaps she talked about how she was exploited and how the result is the child that she carries in her womb. Perhaps she talked about how she was assaulted and the hard hands of her mistress battering her. Perhaps she talked about how she was understandably exhausted and how that had led her out. But all that we see summarized in the biblical text is these words, I flee from the face of my mistress." Sarai, there at the conclusion of verse 8. The angel of the Lord said to her, You go, girl. Oh, sorry, no. (laughs) Return. And that, even when I read it, For the umpteenth time is a hard thing to read. After all that I've told you about Hagar and her experience, the angel of the Lord says, Return. Even in the New Testament, the apostle Paul would tell those who were uh, slaves to seek opportunity of freedom. This woman seems to have the opportunity and the excuse. But remember, God is working out a bigger plan here. There is a purpose. And I I, I must say that this passage and others like it have been abused and exploited. I'm very well aware that they have been abused and exploited in recent history by people who have my particular complexion of skin and accent. And they are blaspheming the name of the Lord God, and they are abusing his holy word whenever they have, in the midst of such exploitation, gone to such scripture to excuse their sin. Or anyone looking back at history making a defense from such passages. It's nonsense. But here in this moment, God who knows all things and God who sees all things knows that Hagar could continue in the wilderness and what would become of her. Or she can return and actually by returning therein would be the path to freedom. In this case, he says, return to your mistress and submit to her. The abuse and exploitation of passages of Scripture like this do not free us from nonetheless seeing the truth of God in it and ourselves understanding what God might be calling us to do in the suffering situations that we face in our life. Sometimes we are called to run and encouraged to run sometimes we're encouraged to return and face what we must. And that's why there's whole books of Scripture in the Old Testament, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, that are devoted to wisdom. And in the New Testament, James, that are devoted to wisdom. We need wisdom. But here in this moment, the wisdom of God enfleshed, the Word of God appearing, says, "Return." But what does he say further to that? I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. I have a plan for you, Hagar. Woman in the wilderness. Slave. Fleeing an abusive mistress. Bearing the child that you didn't really have much say in. Any say in. For your mistress's husband. I have a plan for you. You will bear a son. You will have multitudes come from you. Go back. Submit. I'm working out a plan. I'm helping you. God helps the hopeless. But not only does God help the hopeless, God hears the hurting. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. What does that mean? His hand shall be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. I thought you said that he helps the hopeless and he hears the hurting. I'm not so sure about this. I don't, I don't, I don't think that we're reading this correctly if we think that it's a curse. Perhaps the people who think this is a curse are those who have no frame of reference for the experiences of Hagar in slavery. They don't know what it is to be um, uh, perhaps exploited, assaulted, and exhausted. And so they read that, and they feel threatened by a wild donkey of a man. But if you are a woman who has lived enslaved, and you've been exploited, assaulted, and exhausted, you, you have a promise here that you will carry a son, you will bear a son, and your son will be a, a, species, a specific species of donkey that was known to be untamable, wild and free. No one could harness him. And he. Uh, th- this, this uh, particular donkey would roam the hills and the deserts in safety and freedom, and no one would make this beast its slave. That was good news. Empowered to... To to have a hand against everyone, and yes, to bear everyone's hand against them, that would come with it, but to have the character and the fortitude and the resilience to take it. And he would dwell in the presence of his brethren, and some might say, uh, some translations have rendered that, shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. It is not against in the sense of hostility. There are translations that say that, but that's not helpful. That's not what the word means at all. Rather, it is the sense of they are independent. They they they, They are not attached to their kinsmen, nor are their kinsmen attached to them. They're their own people doing their own thing. It's a message of freedom. It's a message of hope. It's a message from a God who hears hurting people. God is saying, you will bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael. Do you know what Ishmael means? God hears. I've heard you. I've heard you. I've listened to your affliction. And every time you call your son's name, Ishmael, you will remember the God who hears. Your son's not going to be a slave. He's going to be his own man. He's going to be fierce and free. And there's something about his future freedom in which his enslaved mom can enjoy present freedom. Unbound in her soul, liberated from the inside, from endless sorrow and fear, and empowered to go back to her mistress and face life there. That's hope. That's help. And it all comes from God. Uh, Finally, I want you to think about the God who sees the unseen. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. What? Thou God seest me. Or to put it in modern English, you are the God of seeing. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, she calls the name of the well, Birlahai Roy. And the exact title she gives to God is El-Rai, the God who sees. She went back. She bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael, the God who hears. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Do do you realize how much God sees? Do you really realize what it means for him to be El-Rai, the God of seeing? For some, that's bad news. But maybe, just maybe, today, you need some good news. You're burnt out by bad news. It doesn't have to be bad news for God to see. If if, if you are exploited, assaulted, and exhausted, God sees. If you're suffering or struggling, God sees. If you're discouraged or distracted or despairing, God sees. And, and, and the God who sees knows and the God who knows cares and he's working out his plan and purpose in and through you and yes, our suffering. The first time, listen to this, the first time the angel of the Lord appears in Scripture, the first time the Malach Yahweh appears in Scripture is to a fugitive slave woman in the wilderness. The first and only time in all of ancient Near Eastern literature where a woman is called by her name by a divinity is in this passage. She's just a slave woman to to Abram. He repeatedly refers to her by her status, he never calls her her name. Your slave woman, the slave woman. She's called my slave woman. By Sarai, but never called by name, by the actual characters in the text. But to God, he calls her by name, Hagar. And it's not a pretty name to our ears. It's not a pretty name to theirs. It meant stranger, one that fears, one who is forsaken, one who flees. But it was her name, and God called her by it. A series of firsts initiated by God, and Hagar responds with a first of her own. Hagar is the first person in Scripture recorded as naming God personally. El-Rai, the God who sees me. Me, a woman, not a man. Me, an Egyptian not not, not one of these people from Ur who's transitioning to um, some, some new people group that will be called Hebrews. Me, a slave, not free. Me, a single expectant mother of an illegitimate son who is, after all, not the child of promise. I have seen the one who sees me. And she names her son as directed, Ishmael, God hears. Because God is not blind, nor is he deaf. He sees and he hears. God is not mute, nor is he weak. He speaks and he acts. And for those who wonder, for all those who are lost, for those who flee, for those who are exploited, assaulted, and exhausted. That is good news. It was good news then, and it's good news now. Because God told another woman, centuries later, you shall have a son. And he didn't say he'd be a wild donkey, more like a sacrificial lamb the Savior. He didn't say he'd be against everybody. He said he shall save his people from their sins. He said, good news of great joy which shall be for all people. You shall have a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. The God who sees, who sees us in the wilderness of the world, saw us in the wilderness of the world, far from God and alienated from good relationship with Him and His people, running not from abusive slave masters and mit- mistresses, but running from God Himself. And the God who sees and the God who hears came into this world that was running from Him. The eternal Malach Yahweh, the eternal word of God, was incarnate. Actually lived with us, the ultimate child of promise. And he died for us. He doesn't say, go back to your old masters and submit. No, in his first recorded sermon, Jesus claimed to fulfill these words of the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The God who sees. And the God who hears sees us in our chains and hears us in our groanings and comes down and breaks the chains of the world, the flesh and the devil, sin, death and the grave, idolatry, immorality and injustice. The God who sees us calls us to see Him. The God who hears us calls us to call upon His name. And He says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He calls us to trust in him, to worship him, to make disciples, to walk in faithfulness, which of course means at a minimum, caring for those who might otherwise be exploited, assaulted, and exhausted. Paul wrote to the Galatian churches, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This means for freedom, from legalism and all of its family members that emphasize external religiosity, prioritize personal preferences, and fundamentalize mere tradition. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Don't submit to a yoke of slavery. That means libertinism. And all of its family members. That on the extreme opposite end of legalism. Spiritualize sensuality. Prioritize personal permissiveness. And demonize mere truth. For freedom Christ has set you free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We have something better than the slave Hagar. We have... In flesh, the God who sees and hears. The God who saw and heard her. We have someone greater than her free son, Ishmael. We have the promised son who sets free indeed. And whom the son sets free is free indeed. Amen.